0: This is Mike McGinley, Mitch Rose, Peter Katzis, Mike Hayes, Tony from APA, Vince Bannon, Deshaun Healy, Steve Rennie, and Rick Canning, Sam Kenken, Rob McDermott. Happy to be here
1: on Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101.
2: Hi, I'm Slurpee McGurkin, and I'm here to tell you why you should vote for Promoter 101 to be the supreme leader of the International Federation of Podcasts. Promoter 101 cares about you. We strive to bring you the most intriguing, insightful, and entertaining interviews on a weekly basis, purely out of the goodness of our hearts. Other podcasts make you listen to commercials and sponsorships because, well, let's face it, all they really care about
0: is money.
2: Promoter 101 is good for the economy. With all the money people save not buying stuff that other podcasts are selling, they'll be able to buy more concert tickets. That's pretty much the goal, right? Now that's all fine and dandy, but the real reason you should vote for Promoter 101 is that it's hosted by the two most exceptional podcasters in the known universe. With the hard-hitting questions and quick-witted observational humor of Dan Steinberg and the elegant boat shoes and tight-fitting shirts of W. Luke Pierce, Promoter 101 will lead us out of the oppressive grip of podcast monotony and into the light. Vote Promoter 101 for Supreme Leader of the International Federation of Podcasts. But before you do, check us out on Spotify, because we're there now. I'm Slurpy McGurkin, and welcome to Promoter 101.
3: Welcome, dear friends, to episode 95 of the Promoter 101 podcast.
4: This week on the Promoter 101 podcast, we've got AEG Presents, Bobby Reynolds.
3: APA's Noelle Largas shares her views of the biz. A war story from Kill the Eight
4: merch companies, Aaron Rosen. And we have a special guest co-host from Nederlander, Jamie Loeb. Welcome to the podcast, Jamie.
3: Why, thank you. And news of the week with Luke Pierce from Works Entertainment and Dave Brooks from Billboard and Amplified Media.
1: It's Barry Dickens from ITB and I'm on Promoter 101.
3: Did you know you can pretty much listen to Promoter
4: 101 anywhere, Jamie? Really? Anywhere? You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Music. I mean, seriously, pretty much anywhere.
3: Oh my goodness. Well, would you, our listening audience, like to tell us something? If so, just reach out to us at steiny at promoter101.net.
4: Or you can follow us on Twitter. Luke is W. Luke Pierce. I'm at The Jew. The show is Promoters 101 or Promoter 101, whichever you prefer. And Jamie is Jamie Loeb at Twitter. <laughs>
3: This is Arielle Hyatt from Cyber PR on the Promoter 101 podcast.
4: If you've missed any of our past podcasts, don't worry. This week, we've got a classic reissue of episode 52.
3: This episode features AGI's Nick Storch talking about everything from the moment Ghost is having to King Diamond. Sean Healy presents founder and namesake. We'll talk about promoting shows from Phoenix to Seattle. Plus, the war story comes to us from Fast Eddie Mike Cone.
4: And don't forget, you can drop us a review or subscribe or do all the things that Luke, if he were here right now, would be telling you you should really do. Hi, this is Heath Miller, Becca Leifer, Ed Mike Cohn, Derek Dimenstein,
2: Jason Copperman, Jason Miller, John Schur. Marsha Vlasic, Mike Friedman. Ricardo Bacco, Peter Schwartz, Nick Storch. Come on, Promoter 101.
0: Promoter 101. I'm on Promoter 101.
3: News
5: of the Week.
3: Please welcome W. Luke Pierce and Billboard's Dave Brooks.
5: And it's time for the News of the Week. We are joined this week on Promoter 101 by our good friend from Amplify Magazine and Billboard,
6: Mr. Dave Brooks. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Luke. Glad to be here. Tell me what's going on
5: in the world this week. What do you got for us?
6: Yeah, the big story this week: UTA is finally in the money. The United Talent Agency has you know sold a big stake in the company to InvestCore and Public Sector Pension Investment Board, which basically is a fund for the various public employee pensions around the United States. We don't know a lot about the deal, but you know, keep in mind this kind of comes. A few years after T P G bought into CAA, WME and W are sold a majority to Silver Lake partners. What's a little different I, I think is like you know, those two deals, CAA and WME, they're selling it to funds that really help grow the business, you know, while UTA, this investment from, say, the pension fund, this is more about a long-term investment for the pension board. So perhaps that's a good thing. Perhaps that means that the investors will be kind of like sign up partners and won't get involved in the day-to-day decisions of UTA. But I think more importantly, I mean, this just obviously gives UTA the capital it needs to grow and expand as a modern-day agency to compete against CAA, WME, and Paradigm. What do you think that it says
5: that the money that's buying into UTA is Less aligned with other ventures and media spaces, and I'm not saying that TPG with CAA was this big rain capital-esque type of money, or you know, similar to the same thing about Silver Lake. But they had aligned interests in peripheral fields and tech with Silver Lake, you know, and some other businesses with TPG. UTA is being signaled that this is like a complete monetization of equity in UTA by an outside board. That's basically just a, a cash infusion, a way to liquidity event for some of the existing stakeholders and shareholders, of which I will note in this, that they said that even assistants were going to be benefiting from this, which is seems highly unusual in an agency world. But what do you think it says that it's this kind of pension board kind of money and not, you know, some capital that's aligned with entertainment stuff? Is that a knock or reflection on UTA's business and their position right now?
6: That's a really interesting point. And yes, I did see what you're talking about. They're saying that everybody was going to get a financial benefit from this transaction, including a and support staff. I don't uh, really define what that means.
5: Everybody gets a taste is what they
6: think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think you're making a great point. I mean, exactly. Like, well, say, like a Silver Lake partners, The way they're driving WME with investment and pushing, you know, with acquisitions like UFC, you know, the Miss Universe pageant, even Pro Bowl writers, like, right, that's all the strategy, right? Kind of bringing together the talent agency. This UTA deal, it just seems like they're selling an equity stake to these big investors. Investment boards, But we're not seeing like what's the strategy here from the capital side. Maybe that's what Jeremy Zimmer and some of the partners at UTA want. They want to take investment from somebody that's going to give them the money. It's going to capitalize them, but not kind of get in the way of their vision and how they want to spend the money. Maybe that's the kind of partner they're looking for so that the people who are driving the UTA business can also drive how this money is spent.
5: We know we've got a lot of well-informed listeners in the podcast. It should be pointed out too that I'm going to blank on which pension board, but WME Endeavor has taken subsequently since the initial Silver Lake investment. And then since the acquisition of IMG that made Silver Lake a majority owner of, of WME, they've also taken on late-stage pension money. Like, was it was a Canada?
6: Right, yeah. The, yeah. Canada, the Canada pension plan put somewhere up in the hundreds of millions of dollars into WME, just as the Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund has invested in WME and the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. So you're right. It's not just kind of these private equity and groups but this, there's also these big funds that are also getting involved. They're just not necessarily in a majority position. It's
5: interesting we see that. You know, the, the one agency that I left off here that I just scratched my head about is ICM Partners, which has gone through a capitalization period with, you know, Rivsey Capital coming in and then a subsequent buyback of that, you know, they kind of jettisoned the participation of that and, and bought the company back for the private of things, but it this does not seem like the kind of trajectory that an agency is going to take when they're taking on an investment of this size in UTA. This seems like a long tail play for them.
6: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it'll be very interesting to see how they spend this money. UTA has already acquired part of Circle. It'll be interesting to see if they acquire actual touring properties like WME and CAA have. And you're right. I think the the balls in the court of ICM. What are they? How are they going to react to this move? Because they seem kind of like the natural next competitor in line with. The UTA. If you look at the, the Billboard Power 100, the UTA is slightly ranked higher than ICM. So it, it makes sense that they would want to do something in reaction.
5: We'll have to stay tuned on that story. What else you got, Dave?
6: Everybody has heard of the legendary rock club Viper Room. I've been there many times. What we've learned in the last month is that the Viper Room, along with a number of other properties along the Sunset Strip, have been bundled together and sold to a uh, private equity group. Now, we don't know yet what is going to happen to the Viper Room, but you know, if you look at what's happened to properties like the House of Blues on the Sunset Strip, you know, music venue, are kind of seen as the least profitable venture. And that area is such a high area for condos and hotels that they're being knocked down for those type of properties. So I think it'll be interesting to see if the Viper Room survives this acquisition. We don't know a lot about the buyer. It's just an LLC out of Scottsdale calling itself 8850 Sunset, which is just the address. But, you know, the Viper Room obviously has such a rich history, you know. It goes back to the kind of mob days of L.A., like, you know, Bugsy Siegel. And, you know, obviously Johnny Depp bought into it in the 90s. It was like River Phoenix stories. I mean, like plus all of the poker games. I
5: don't know if you've seen Molly's game. Yes. uh, Detailing uh, the high stakes poker games happening back there,
6: too. Right. Tobey Maguire kind of muscling people around in his (laughs) poker games. I mean, just so much history for a venue that's really, you know, just a 250. 50-cap venue. So we'll see uh, what happens with this, but I think it's not the best sign for L.A. music. I assume this is going to become a high-rise of some sort.
5: Like, there's just no way that this thing survives, right? Which is a a sad thing.
6: Yeah, I agree. I mean, what they did to the House of Blues is basically condos and hotels. And I mean, let's be honest, the Sunset Strip just is not the hot spot in L.A. anymore, right? I mean, I I think the Roxy is a great room and it's it's amazing to see like an underplay there. But if you look at where the the places around L.A. that are really happening, you know, it's Hollywood, it's kind of mid-Wilshire, it's even downtown. Sunset Strip, I mean, there's just not a lot going on in that part of town, especially for new music and culture. It's just a lot of small clubs and special nights and and not the roxy or the viper room but even some like pay-to-play stuff going on so i think the sunset strip you know might have outlived its prime
5: all the hipsters hopped on their fixed gears and headed out to silver lake and echo park man yeah
6: exactly the east side is where it seems to be at these days what else is going on this week in the news I love the story because it's such a head-scratcher. Golden Voice has announced the second year of Tropicali Fest in Long Beach, where I live, and, and they're doing it on the side of the Queen Mary, which is this historic boat. The festival actually takes place next to the Queen Mary, you should you say, it's on the boat. So anyways, Tropicali is an event with a lot of Spanish-language bands. It kind of has a Mexican-American audience, and they do a great job booking all sorts of artists. What's interesting is this year, the festival is being headlined by Morrissey, who course, course, you know, is popular, you know, in all demographics. I think, you know, there's a lot of Mexican-American fans who love Morrissey. But Tropicali, at his heart, is not just a music festival. It's also a celebration of tacos. And if you know anything about Morrissey, he hates meat. And he (laughs) cancels shows all the time. This is gonna be a real interesting thing to watch. It's, it's in November third and fourth. And I mean look, Morrissey is anchoring this thing down, right? He is the big name. They also have Cardi B, you know, Mostías El Norte, some other great acts, but I mean this it seems like a roll of the dice getting Morrissey downstage when you're gonna have taco meat in the air.
5: It's a roll of dice anytime you buy Morrissey, right? I I feel like everybody's, in some degree, has got a Morrissey horror story attached to it, you know? So to put him in a place where you know there's going to be the elements that's going to trigger that guy, you better be finding some sort of insurance or subrogation to limit your exposure on that front of things. Because otherwise, it's going to come 10 o'clock, get him on stage, nowhere to be found. It's not going to be a good thing. That festival plays out when? This fall? It's November 3rd and 4th down here in Long Beach. Are you going to be at it? Are you going to be tasting some tacos? Oh, I'll be there.
6: I didn't go last year, but I really like this event site. And Tropic Holly Fest is just very cool with the marketing and the way they put it together. It has a great look. Just basically celebrating you know, Mexican-American culture here in Los Angeles. Oh, fantastic. One more, bring us home. What else is going on this week? This last story, I just have such a hard time wrapping my head around this one. James Dolan, of course, the chairman and CEO of Madison Square Garden, has released a song called I Should Have Known that tackles – Sexual harassment and you know victims' rights. And while he ha- doesn't explicitly come out and say it, the song is very likely about his long relationship with Harvey Weinstein.
5: Obviously, let's draw a line between. MSG, Radio City and Harvey Weinstein and James Dolan. This connection goes back quite a ways, right?
6: Yeah, they've been friends forever and recently Dolan sat on the Weinstein Company's board. But if you really want to like hone in on the song, I think what it's talking about is this period of time that began in 2014 when Dolan asked Harvey Weinstein to reboot the Rockettes Spring Show. Of course, they have the, the famous Christmas Spectacular that happens every year. But the Rockheads have always struggled with a spring-summer content. And so 2014, Dolan brings Weinstein in. They start working on redoing the show. They complete a rework of the show. For whatever reason, creative forces watched the rehearsal of the final show and said, this is not ready for primetime. So they delayed it a year. They finally got the show up and out in 2015, and then... It was pretty much panned by the critics who just didn't have a nice things to say about it, pretty much been dead from there. Is Dolan dealing with guilt for exposing the Rockettes to Weinstein? I mean, I would not want to be the person who introduced Harvey Weinstein to, you know, dancers. Uh, anybody. So, you yeah, know? exactly. Anybody, <laughs> let alone, you know, the Rockettes, which is like an institution. And there was like a great article in the New York Daily News with all these blind quotes. Quotes and anonymous, you know, allegations saying the dancers were happy to be ready of the, quote, creepy old man. And they were, quote, relieved he won't be standing in the back of the theater and taking notes in the dark. So it's definitely an interesting way for Dolan to kind of deal with Weinstein. And while, you know, I think it's easy to say, how is that making amends with potentially introducing a predator to all sorts of people. You know, I'm going to reserve judgment on this for Dolan and give him the benefit of the doubt for now. But I think if he really thinks that he is going to turn the chapter on Weinstein, he's going to have to do more. I think I'm just going to give him the, the benefit of time to actually do more before I make judgment. And hey, listen,
5: of course they want to get out information about this song and this music, this side project, J.D. and the Straight Shots that James Dolan sings in is interesting and all, but the way that the story read to me felt like this was a publicist handing the story to journalists to write about a particular song. So, is it an element of guilt? Is it an element of self-promotion? I don't know what it is to make a it, but I felt very weird even reading that article. And I don't don't know how it read to you, Dave, but it just felt like one of those stories that I read over and over from artists talking about their singles, you know?
6: The whole thing isn't incredibly strange. This whole thing is predicated on the idea that like JD and the straight shot is actually a good band or even like a worthy band of us talking about it. Anything, right? I mean, there's just so many levels of strange here.
5: right. Like, are we really caring about James Dolan's band right now that's what we're talking about we're spending time talking about it but it's because it made a, a headline in billboard because it was service out there i mean this is the band that flies private on it, dolan's jet everywhere in between gigs it's like this is to your point it is like a, a hilarious premise of which we're building all these conversations on
6: in a way it's, it's a head scratcher that we're, we're still talking to it but maybe it's also another tip of the hat to dolan that he's kept his music in the headlines for so long because if you if you look listen to it, and you dive into it, it's really not that great.
5: Well, I'll have to take a listen to this song. I'm certainly probably not going to spend time listening to the back catalog of JD and the Straight Shots. But nonetheless, an interesting story, an interesting kind of admission of guilt on things, I think on Dolan's part more than anything. And certainly something that I think a lot of people are going to have to reconcile themselves at some point if you did business with Harvey Weinstein the last 25 years. And I think there's no better place to end on such an interesting story. Got to thank our buddy Dave Brooks from Amplify Magazine and from Billboard for joining us, as always, on Promoter 101. Dave, good to have you. And we're going to have to get drinks soon, man.
6: You got it, Luke. Absolutely. I look forward to seeing you whenever our paths cross. And I, I, love I being are you. On- doing I, are you doing? Are you doing Are You coming out for a night? I'll be there. I'll be at Ieba, so we'll meet up then. We're doing it again. Look,
5: look for Dave Brooks in the news. Ieba again. I'm sure sometimes before that too. But thank you as always, Dave, for your time
6: today. My pleasure. Thanks, Luke.
4: Luke and Dave are always just the best at coming up with scoops, and you know you can always tell them apart because Luke is the one with the very colorful pants. Jamie,
3: <laughs> I've noticed.
0: Hi, I'm Mitch Rose, co-head of the music department at CAA, and I'm on Promoter 101.
3: It's everyone's favorite time, the announcement of the Promoter 101 Badass of the Week. This week, a little shameless
4: self-promotion, as we're very excited to announce this week's Promoter 101 Badass of the Week is going out to Jason Zink, because he never listens to the podcast, he'll actually never know. But hey, shameless self-promotion for us at Emporium this week.
3: Congratulations, Jason.
7: This is Julia Frank from Wizard Promotions in Germany, and we're on Promoter 101.
3: In our feature interview this week, we've got Bobby Reynolds from AEG Presents.
4: Las Vegas, Nevada, and I'm hanging out with the king of Vegas, Bobby Reynolds. Welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks for coming to Las Vegas. So we've known each other for a long time, and I've got a very broad view of your epic career from agent to promoter, every
1: coast that this industry offers in the U.S., and now Vegas. Vegas. Well, I don't think I put agent on my resume. Hey, man, QBQ. (laughs) Being an intern for Dennis at QBQ for train Fair. I don't think qualifies as an agent, but I'll take the compliment. Guy booked some cool acts. Absolutely. It's great being so young, seeing all that and and starting out, you know, watching Metallica tours go out and Billy Joel tours go out and... Andrew Dice Clay, being the biggest comedian on the planet at the time, it was really really cool being there.
4: That's two things. Andrew Dice Clay once sold Madison Square Garden out for two nights. Right. That's how powerful a comedian was once upon a time. Right. Which was unheard of. It's not like now where you got six guys that can do that kind of business. Absolutely right. There was yeah. one. There was him.
1: one. I don't think until that time I ever saw a comedian advertised in an arena. I mean, it was just mind blowing. And graduating high school in New York in '93, I used to burn out those dice cassette tapes. You know.
4: Absolutely. Q B Q was the precursor to what is now. AGI and essentially is now probably the most premier boutique agency in the world.
1: Yeah, they are. They have a a really solid crew of guys there that have been there for a long time, and they continue to not only come up with new talent to represent, but they have their mainstays.
4: To say you're not an agent or you weren't, okay, but you could have been, and you definitely were in the door at one of the coolest agencies in the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, at about as low a level as you can get, I was definitely there watching stuff go down and learning about the business for sure. Okay, so what kicked it over to the promoter yeah, side? Yeah, I mean, I think even while I was out chasing ticket counts and running for lunches and doing those kind of tasks, I kind of liked the promoter side of things more. I would talk to promoters and their assistants and, and just kind of liked the aspect of really producing the shows, being at all the shows and, you know, the concerts and that, that experience is really why I got into this business. And it seemed like promoters had more of that experience day to day. You switched over sides, what, basically about 20 years ago, right? Yeah, so Jim Maloney was one of the guys that I would talk to when I worked at QBQ in his office. And Jim was working at Cellar Door at the time in Virginia and was going down to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina to open up the House of Blues. And I had heard of the House of Blues in Boston and in Chicago, New Orleans and L.A. at the time and I always thought what they were doing was super cool. And Myrtle Beach was going to be their biggest venue to date. So when Jim was going down there, not many people moved from New York City to Myrtle Beach to work in the music business. But I did that. And I did it for a little while, was with the Myrtle Beach store for about a year and a half. And then I got you know an opportunity that I think really kind of changed my career trajectory was when Kevin Morrow called me and asked me to come out to LA to work in his office and go work for the L.A. House of Blues, which, you know, at the time was the coolest place in town, the coolest music venue in town, if not the country.
4: Kevin, of course, being a legend in the industry and what he did for House of Blues. But even before that, another guy that started on the agent side, yeah. Falk and Morrow Agency, right. which was the
1: original Sky Agency. That was a little before my time, but I've heard the stories from Kev and sounded like a very interesting place to work. Toasters and dancehall crashers. Yeah. And yeah. Elise Rogers was an agent there. Some
4: very cool stuff. All right. So now you're in the House of Blues system and part of a national syndicate as a talent buyer.
1: Yeah. I mean, all the entertainment decisions at a macro level were coming out of LA and the buyers would bounce their offers off of Kev. Kevin would run a weekly buyer call. Michael Yerke and Sonny Schneidau and Jim Maloney. Mike Krebs joined just a drop after I got there, getting to listen to those guys and how they conducted their business, how they gauged talent, how they cut their deals, and, and really probably most importantly, how they communicated Uh, with their staff and with the home office in L.A., it was really just an eye-opening opportunity. On top of that, you know, being out at night and developing relationships with agents and managers while we're all cutting our teeth and we're all making no money and living in L.A. and and just having a really good time. It it was was a great thing for my career. At this moment in time in the industry, Independent promoters ruled the universe. They were called
4: the majors at the time because independent promoters were small club kids at that moment. Because the big promoters were what we now would call independent promoters—the guys that were doing arena shows in a market, jams, cellar door, pace, even what have you—those guys were the majors, which is the biggest promoters. They would do the stone shows in the market, or you too. So at that point, these house of blues clubs, which are fairly new at that moment, are springing up in these markets and taking on the big major in their market. So. To have guys calling like Michael Yerke on this phone call who's just opened Chicago and is trying to compete with the Vic and the Riv and all the jam shows – it, this is a massive undertaking. Now it seems a little different looking at history. Like, of course, the House of Blues is going to work in Chicago. But at the time, we were all looking at, like, could th- can this work? They bought some really high end property. You're going to Chicago against Jam? Like, that was hitting your head against the wall on a big level. And they were doing this all over the place. New Orleans, a little easier, but still real promoters in that market always. And so they're doing this around the country and they're getting into these scrap fights in every market and they continue to do so. They go to Cleveland later and take on Belkin before they came, became part of the same system. But you've got this all over the country where these guys are picking fights with the biggest promoters in the world.
1: And I, I think that kind of goes back to one of my learning experiences. You know, the vibe at the House of Blues, the customer service there, I, I thought was great. You know, for the most part, people really enjoyed coming to the House of Blues. They bought the cool merchandise. They ate at the venue. I mean, in L.A., if you remember, the balcony kind of opened up. The seas parted when when, when the show started. you're Sitting in your seat, you look down, you see a thousand people crowded downstairs. I mean, they, they were doing things that really no one else was. And that Vince, how House of Blues started to become a a brand name and business-wise agents and artists recognize that House of Blues always sounded good and the food was always good. And as we know, if your catering is good and your sound's good, you're probably going to have a good show. At least the artist's going to think so.
4: Next level stuff. I mean, you had a couple clubs where the experience was already there, like the Norva. They had a good thing that they were doing there where they were making Axe happy. Seth always had a vibe. They made Axe happy. But nationally, you weren't seeing that yet. There's a stage. You're lucky if there's a four toilet seat backstage.
1: You know, a lot of that had to do with looking back with Kevin coming from the agent world. And really, you know, knowing firsthand what was making artists happy and trying to adapt that thought process and those actions to the promoter side of the coin, which, you know, again, on the national level really wasn't being done.
4: You're with House of Blues, pre-Live Nation, right? This is pretty clear channel. Oh, yeah. Okay, so a couple more jumps. You visited a couple more markets. Where else did you go?
1: Went to Orlando with House of Blues after leaving L.A., back to work with Jim Maloney. So Orlando, that's a fight, too, because you're
4: talking about going up against Phantasma, Mm -hmm. Mm Stoll, JV. Huge promoters in that market at the time. Fat Harry is doing shows there, too. Yeah, and
1: I mean, the Hard Rock wasn't there yet. The Hard Rock in Orlando wasn't there yet, so as far as venues went... I mean, there really wasn't anything that could touch the House of Blues, you know? It was brand new. It was on downtown Disney property. Parking was easy. And just the whole vibe of House of Blues was a really new and fresh thing at that time. So there was certainly competition. But from a size standpoint, just a vibe standpoint, there really wasn't anything that could compete with House of Blues down there at the time. So by the time you guys open Orlando, there's enough venues
4: open where there's some critical mass. You guys are getting yeah. all the avails because if you're not getting them, the guy booking Chicago, Michael Yerke, or Sonny in New Orleans is getting it, or Kevin's getting it in L.A. Somewhere yeah. you guys know it's coming and you guys are having a chance to fight for it.
1: Yeah. And, and again, that was my first foray as working for a promoter and you really realize the power of talking and communicating, and absolutely, every single week, we would hear what a veil Sonny was getting and would proactively look at it for different markets and vice versa.
4: But the first national promoter was created with that network, so to speak, for the first time, where you saw guys, Graham maybe doing a stadium tour across the whole country pre that, but for the most, and that would be a special one-off thing for the Stones or Crosby seals National Young or something. It didn't really happen that much. But this moment was a permanent structure that now you had promoters that were on the same team spread out nationally talking every day.
1: Yeah. Again, hearing those conversations in the embryonic stage, it it was just great to be around. Really, really learned a lot. Kind of let myself be a sponge at that time and just hear what all these super smart guys were talking about and how they're doing their thing and how excited they were. You know, guys that had been in the business for a while, how excited they were to be the recipient of all this information, all this data. Not only what avails are there, but what the on-sales were like in the markets, how the show closed, what the walk-up was like. If there were security concerns, it was just... So much information that got transferred back and forth. And it was still a small call. There were only a handful of guys on it at the time. And as House of Blues grew, those calls grew. I left House of Blues definitely before the Live Nation acquisition, you know, but skipping forward now, even being on AEG phone calls, and I'm sure Live Nation is the same, if not even more cumbersome. There's a lot of people on it, you know, there's a lot of people and it's impossible to let everyone have a few minutes You'd be on the call for hours. It was a really great time and a really great experience to be on the call with such a strong, small group of guys so early on.
4: And all those guys are still very prolific in the industry Mm -hmm. for the most part. So you go from House of Blues and at some point you wind up at AEG.
1: Yeah, I got a call from Joe Litvag, who was looking for a buyer. We had a couple of great conversations. Maybe I wasn't terribly keen on moving to St. Louis, but I think on our third or fourth conversation was when Joe broke to me that it wasn't going to be in St. Louis, it was going to be in Chicago. That was all I needed to hear, because my only trepidation, frankly, was moving to St. Louis. And with the benefit of hindsight, I should have taken the job wherever it was. But certainly, in my opinion, going to Chicago was far more attractive than going to St. Louis. And they brought me to Chicago at the time when AEG was working with Nokia a lot. Nokia Theater in, in New York City had not even been built yet. LA Live was going to be built with the Nokia Theater and Club Nokia. They were going to look to make the Congress Theater, Nokia Theater Chicago. They were going to put a bunch, a bunch of money into it and really ramp that place up and have that be part of a network with similar kind of assets and a similar kind of Chicago, feel. New York, LA, great start. Exactly right. Long story longer and well above my pay grade, the real estate deal with the Congress and some of the surrounding property didn't work out. So then I went to, I found myself in Chicago with no history and no venue to book. Going up against Michael Yerke and the guys from Jam, and I would get my ass kicked on a daily basis. As
4: anyone would, because... As, as anyone would. I mean, wow. you know,
1: it, it was an insurmountable task.
4: I mean, at that point, you're talking about both Arnie and Jerry still buying. You're talking right. about Don, Don Sullivan. Yep. You're
1: talking about Andrew. You're
4: talking yeah. about
1: Nick Miller. It's yeah. like, and, and, wow. And like, and like no one even thought about me when calling Chicago. They had no reason to. It was just an unfortunate situation. But the company had my back. I started doing shows in Detroit, not that that's an easy market, but I was able to bring to the AEG Fold an amazing venue called the Royal Oak Music Theater. I helped shepherd that deal through and started booking a lot of dates at it. When I left that office as a matter of fact I helped hire Jason Rogaleski, one of our fantastic buyers, who's just crushing into that market right now. Doing shows in Detroit, like I said, Columbus, a ton of shows in Kansas City. Just doing shows to kind of fill in the gap and cover my salary was on the road a lot, and it definitely wasn't the ideal situation.
4: Were you the precursor to AEG's venues there that Mike D had kind of helped develop along?
1: Not really. Uh, but the there, Mi- wa- there weren't any of those things yet, right? The, the, the Midland Theater wasn't there. We were, I was doing shows at the Uptown Theater and the Beaumont Club. Okay, right, so you're kind of competing with Jeff Fortier. Yeah, to a certain degree. We were Joe Litvad cultivated a lot of radio shows up there. I kind of pilfered some action off of those things again just to, you know, be a utility guy and, and, and be another guy booking shows and, and making some money. While I wasn't unhappy there, I certainly wanted to identify with the market more have more focus on what it was I was gonna be doing. There was one division in the company that I think everyone was envious of at the time, referring to A.G. of course. That was our Las Vegas operation. John Meglin and John Nelson started the Coliseum at Caesars Palace, the most successful theater in the world. At the time or even now? Even now. Now, how do you judge that? What is that based on? About a tickets sold and gross. Those are two very solid things that you would judge by. Yeah, those are pretty good barometers. And gross-wise, you know... I don't remember what the other venues are, but in Billboard, there was a, there's an, actually an ad in, in the Coliseum. I'll send it over to you. And it talked about the most successful theaters under, I think it's 6,500 capacity in the world. And the Coliseum, I hope I'm not fucking this up when I say opened up in 2003 before my time here. So these other venues had a three-year head start on the Coliseum. And if you added up the gross revenue for venues number two, three, four, and five, they don't equal what the Coliseum is. These are
4: various venues.
1: No, no, no. These are in the US. Fox Theater in Atlanta, Fox in Detroit. Wow! I'll take a screenshot of that ad and send it to you. It's like cool. We'll put it on our social media so everybody <laughs> yeah. can have adjacent with the one, one of the most impressive things I've seen statistic wise in this business. So Titanic may have sank the ship, but yeah, it built the Coliseum. A, a great line. You guys can pay me for that, whatever you want. Sure. The business out here was Celine. It was Bette Midler. It was Cher. Certainly, the venue was built for Celine, and Celine was the and still is the biggest act out here. And then. Peter Morton sold the hard rock. I'm living in Chicago. The Vegas business is going strong. AEG gets the contract to book the hard rock. Because it was Hewitt Silva before that. Mm -hmm. Under Peter Morton's regime, Peter sold it to a different hedge fund. There's been several ownership changes in the the past decade that we've been involved there. AEG got the contract to book the venue. It was uh, John Meglin that got it done. And in true Meglin fashion, I was like, okay, well now I need someone to do it. (laughs) And as a story, as I understand it is, Meglin asked Larry Fallon who we should have doing it. And he goes, I got just the guy for you. So I was living in Chicago, booking the joint, coming out here in the winter time to go cover shows, <laughs> like leaving the Chicago winter and coming to cover shows at the Hard Rock was a pretty awesome time. But after probably six months of doing that from Chicago, Meglin asked me to move out here. And I did. Couldn't be happier. Love it out here. Been out here 10 years. And it was my job to kind of cultivate the market outside of the Coliseum. To say that was a well-oiled machine is, is an understatement. So at the time, did everything at the joint, did some one-offs at the Coliseum on the very few weekends that there weren't resident artists. Right, because at the time you guys had Selena and Elton's, so and between them, that's well, really. I mean, it was it was Selena, Elton, and then different residency shows popped in. And we we'd fill in weekends. We would book Mexican Independence Day separately. Maybe do some late night stuff on the appropriate weekend. By late night, I mean a comedian at ten thirty on Memorial Day Saturday. You know, after... or Seinfeld or something. Right. Yeah. There were different things that went in, but not a ton. Would buy a handful of arena shows bunch of shows at the pool at Mandalay Bay. And again, started to cultivate an entertainment business out here, aside from what we were doing at the Coliseum. But make no doubt about it, the Coliseum was definitely our bread and butter.
4: Okay. So the Coliseum is in full swing. And for anyone that hasn't heard the story about how the Coliseum came to be, I would urge you to go back and listen to the John Meglin podcast where he talks about cutting the deal with Anschutz up against the wall, explaining his vision and cutting it in person in real time, holding him up against the wall while he's explaining the <laughs> yeah. You got to go back and listen to it because it's a great interview. I won't recast it because he tells it better than anybody. <laughs> you guys are big into the market between having the joint and now you've got Caesars with the Coliseum. And Caesars is probably the only property that's kept up throughout all the eras with staying hip.
1: Absolutely. They've done a great job reinventing themselves and Coliseum played an enormous role in that, an enormous role, bringing in stadium-level headline talent to play in a beautifully designed, soft-seat, 4,300 capacity theater. I mean, it's just an awesome place to see a show, and like I was telling you at lunch, you see some of the entertainers in there, you you can't help but to be massively impressed, and the intimacy is what, that's what allows us to charge as much as we do for those tickets. It's, It's the experiences that everyone in the business talks about now, to Meglin's credit, knowing you can charge so much money for a ticket and provide some with that experience, people were afraid to do that and, and John wasn't. And that's what caused the Coliseum to be such a high-grossing venue, like I said.
4: Okay, so if Meglin cuts the deal and then you're here putting in the plays like he's
1: the coach calling the plays from the sideline. You're the quarterback here on the field, pulling it off. And John Nelson is the executive here that kind of runs the day-to-day business. So it's pretty easy for me just to go ahead and try to get new venue deals and then book the venues that we have. John handles a lot of the day-to-day operation in this market and absolutely facilitates on deals, but for sure his forte is is running the office here and kind of letting everyone do what they do best.
4: So now that we've done the history, let's talk about the fact that Vegas is your market for AEG. You oversee this market. You've got two things that you have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. One is you're still buying one-off shows... And the other is you're dealing with residencies, setting them up and then keeping them running. So that's two different pitches. So let's do the residency first, and then we'll talk about the market itself and the one-offs. So when you're going through developing a residency and cutting that deal, you're talking to an act that's used to their stadium or arena touring, because it's got to be an act of that level, a Jennifer Lopez or Gwen Stefani or Bette Midler, whoever it may be, but somebody that's touring with 12, 20 semis, right? You got to talk them into playing a theater and doing a more intimate show than they've done in years. That's got to be a very personal pitch
1: each time. Yeah, it is. And it gets easier and easier, frankly, as, as the business goes on because the word spreads. And I'll tell you, I've never worked with an artist, whether it's something as big as the Coliseum, whether it's something at the joint or something at the wind where the artist doesn't like the concept. A couple of things go into, before you get to the pitch, you want to identify the artist that you want to go after, right? Whether it's Live Nation doing Gwen Stefani, or whether it's AEG doing Elton John or Celine Dion, even if we're doing Journey at the Hard Rock, Roscoe Flats at the Hard Rock, regardless of the venue or the property, the artists have to have a catalog. And they have to have years of history, putting on great shows and having a reputation for that. People, you're in Vegas for three nights. You want to go see something you know is going to knock your socks off. You know Gwen Stefani is going to put on a show. Why? Because you've seen her before. You know she's a pro. You know she knows what she's doing. And you know you're going to go in there tonight and probably know 85% of the songs, if not more. That goes back to the catalog. When artists have been around so long to accrue a catalog and accrue a reputation for being a great live artist, frankly, it's a welcome change to them to ditch the buses ditch the private jets, ditch the 12 trucks, come in and do a cut down thing, take the elevator to work, wake up in the same beautiful bed every day instead of traversing the country back and forth. We talk about a home field advantage for sports all the time. We don't talk about it for the music business. A residency is the closest thing you're ever going to have to a home field advantage.
4: Hold on one sec. You just had to take the elevator to work. In the case of the Coliseum, Celine can literally do that, right? The department's literally attached to the theater for her.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not that clean. But she doesn't have to deal with the public if she doesn't want to. Definitely not. No one has to whether it's here at the Wynn, whether it's at the Hard Rock. We just toured the backstage area for the Encore Theater. You see how well thought out these theaters are and how well constructed they are. But yeah, that's exactly what I meant. They take the elevator to work. They take the elevator down. They get in their car, typically, into a car that we provide, and we drop them off right backstage. They leave their room, and they're in the venue in no more than four minutes. It's a very easy and efficient way to do your business. Like I said, no trucks, no buses, In-house sound and lights. Another thing, I mean, we talk about the big, robust shows, the big, huge production shows in Vegas. Here at the Encore, it's almost a different kind of mentality that we pitch, and it's to make the shows less about the production and maybe more about the artist. You're in such an intimate place; you don't need all the production, and you might put a different spin on it by having it be more storytelling centric, more singer-songwriter centric. You know, we've done a lot of shows in here. I find the more simple shows are the ones that I happen to like a little bit more, and are a bit more well-received than some of the others kind of the idea of garth
4: just cut down when he played here just him and a guitar not the big band thing that he was touring with just we were
1: not involved in that deal but that's the exact pitch and it's that been Steve an evening of music. Garth and, and, and they wanted to do it. and i i love 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 that concept i mean i want to see more of that and frankly we're actually in, in real conversations right now with an artist about doing something just like that and if it pans out it'll be awesome
4: Live Nation and AEG are both doing these residencies all over town, but you guys aren't really competing for the residencies a lot, right? It's like you guys are pitching to an artist. It's probably an idea nobody else has talked to them yet or whatever. It's not usually one against the other in that case. It's just...
1: I mean, I wouldn't say that's the case. There, there are definitely times we're going for the same artist, and I win a fair amount of them. Live Nation gets a fair amount of them. Live Nation, everyone listening to this podcast knows, has management relationships with artists and- And yeah, tour deals. And a very robust tour deal. And As do you guys. A, a very wise addendum to a tour deal is a residency option. And I think we've done a great job. I think Live Nation's done a great job of getting artists to town that maybe- you you wouldn't think you would see them doing a residency. I mean, MGM landed a Lady Gaga deal. That's bringing in such a big name, younger artist. It's going to open the door for many more. You know, we can make an argument. Britney Spears helped do that, or Jennifer Lopez helped do that.
4: They seem to be skewing younger and younger. Now you're seeing Blink-182 do one. You're seeing Gwen Stefani do one. So you're talking about this has now made it to the mid-90 acts.
1: Yeah, and and I think we'll see more of that. Blink-182 is another example of a band that has a great catalog you're going to go see the show at Blink at the Palms. And if you're a mid-level Blink 82 fan, you're going to know 80% of the songs that are there, if, if not more of them. So who would have thought the day that punk
4: rock would be a residency <laughs> in Las Vegas? Yeah, right. It's a thing now. I mean, obviously you're talking about Jennifer Lopez, which seems to lend itself as a movie star and a pop act. It seems like Will Smith would be, you know, a candidate for something like that. Those yeah. mainstream movie stars that have huge catalogs that 40 years of music lovers are into. Obviously anything attached to something big pop, like the who or the, the Rolling Stones, like, would easily grab attention. But now we're moving into the younger generations, not just the divas and the crooners. So it seems like that opens itself up to a mass number of artists that can be pulling from all over the site. Uh, It seems like Tool
1: could do one, and that would be huge. Tool could do one and start tomorrow, and it it would blow out. I get asked almost in every single interview, you know, which artist do you want to do? I'm I'm a huge Dave Matthews fan. Dave could do one in a heartbeat. Tool could easily do one. Zach Brown could do one. There's a, there's a huge list of these rock artists or pop artists, younger artists that, that, that could do a residency. I don't know that the younger artists are really ready to do residencies yet. Every single time that one does do one, it, it gets easier. So let's talk about the investment.
4: In the case of Celine or Elton, it's, those are big production shows. Right. And I know Britney rolled out an amazing production show. When you're doing a residency, a lot of these, like The Who, The Who is just basically a cut down version of their arena show but wasn't a huge production show. We're in the scope of things are we're shooting the Wad on this. We're building a full show around Elton John versus we're just doing six shows with The Who. And I'm guessing in the case of The Who was The Who were probably only willing to do six shows at that moment.
1: Yeah, I mean, in the case of The the Who, it was always let's try six shows out and see how we like it. And we liked it and they liked it. Maybe it will come around back again. I don't know. But certainly no one, neither us or The Who, was looking to invest millions of dollars in set creation for a six show deal. Right.
4: But if they wanted to do Tommy here where they'd actually perform it for a long-term residency, I imagine you guys would write a check for that very quickly on a big production show. Absolutely.
1: Like, like, like we've done for Elton and Celine and countless others, but that has to be part of a much bigger deal. Right. Cause you have to recoup team.
4: it. Have to recoup it. So at what point of the process is we see this as a three to 10 year possible residency versus let's try six shows and then go from there.
1: You know, like any other deal, like any deal you cut or I cut, it's it's a conversation. We have a residency with Reba Brooks and Dunn over at the Coliseum. We started out two years. We extended it for another run and are in, in conversations about extending it even further. It's, it's been a great show. That show's set works so well for them. And here's another Meglin quote. You have all your shit from all the other tours and warehouses. Bring that out and resurrect that. You already have it. You already paid for it. The best of. So there's so many ways to skin the cat. And frankly, people want... Whether you call it best of or not, that's people want in Vegas. They don't want to hear eight new songs, you know, in a set. They want the the, the greatest. They want to hear the hits, and they want to go do a million other things that night, you know. So it's like anything else. If we're gonna, we've made commitments to artists, long-term, multi-year, multi-million-dollar commitments. Haven't afforded them a production budget. We've done deals with artists where we've we've given them multi-million-dollar production budgets. At the end of the day, it also goes into the expense pot, right? If we're fronting someone. $5 $5 million to build a show over X amount of shows. Well, we're going to pay them X less.
4: Right. It's, it's, it's all factored in. Exactly. right. It, it, it's all factored in. That's one thing you just mentioned with Brooks and Dunn and Reba. Brooks and Dunn don't tour anymore. They're done. Same thing in the case of George Strait. So Louie got George Strait to do a residency at the arena here, but he's not touring. He's done touring. He did his farewell. Cher, done touring, but will still play Vegas. They've done their farewells. But yet, you guys have figured out a setup that made it comfortable that whatever it is they don't like about being on the road, they're not touring anymore. But yet, you guys are able to get him to come here and still perform. Same thing with Garth Brooks. Wynn got him to come back when he decided he wasn't going to work any longer.
1: They liked it so much, he decided to fucking tour again. Well, the two things. One, they're not touring, and they're not making a ton of money off their album catalog sales, Right. So here's an opportunity for an artist that doesn't have to tour, doesn't have to put up with all the rigors of touring, the expense of touring, but they can still come perform their craft, be handsomely compensated and still cultivate that relationship with their fan base. And it provides another opportunity. In the case of Brooks and Dunn, the story goes, there's old stories that they really didn't get along on the road. They had their disagreements on the road, but they never hated each other or battled each other at odds like maybe it was depicted in some journalism. But anyway... Kicks and Ronnie and Reba and their significant others were at the Palm in Nashville, getting ready to go see Elton John at Bridgestone Arena, who ironically just wrapped up a multi-year residency at the Coliseum. And they got into talking and their, their words, they, you know, they're drinking some wine at dinner and they miss getting back out there. They miss performing, but just didn't have a desire to be on the road every single night. I think it was Ronnie who said, well, man, if I could find a little honeypot, I'd love to play again. I just don't want to be on the road. About a day later, <laughs> they waited a full day, and Rob Beckham gave me a call. And it, honestly, it didn't really take long. We got that deal done quickly. We're going to have nearly 100 shows by the time all is said and done with those guys. And they do it so right. I, I can't tell you. We talked about this earlier. They come out here. They stay their entire run. Some artists, you know, especially the ones that live in LA, they might go back for a few days. They're all based in Nashville. They come out here. Ronnie Dunn is a very accomplished photographer. Goes to the state parks, the national parks that are drivable from Las Vegas. So he's got a hobby. He has a hobby. Kicks Brooks, great golfer. He and I golf every time he's out here a couple rounds a time. His friends come out. They fly out and they go golf. They go get a steak dinner at night on his off days like... They love being out here. Reba is, is a works like crazy and is always, you know, doing something work oriented, whether it's going to the studio, a quick trip out to LA for meetings or for uh, whatever it may be. But they come out here and avoid all the rigors of touring and all the demands on their time and their body, and and just they love it here. It's become Ronnie Dunn's honeypot. And he said that in in interviews. He loves the sound. He loves taking the elevator to work. And he loves on his off days being able to explore this beautiful part of the country.
4: Right. Well, if Ronnie Dunn doesn't have a cowboy hat on
1: and boots, he can probably walk through the casino not being bothered. He's literally, I think, the only guy that does that. When he gets down towards the Coliseum through the casino, there's a lot of people walking around with cowboy hats and jeans on. And he just kind of puts his head down and goes. And by the way, if people do recognize him, it definitely happens there isn't a more gracious person to their fans on, on, on the planet. So
6: let's
4: talk about some of the ones that almost happened or that you guys went for that would have been cooler. I'm sure Simon and Garfunkel had to have been pitched, right?
1: Yeah, that's definitely one that we spoke about. For sure. You figure after they did the
4: reunion tour, there was a shot.
1: Yeah. Thought there might have been Because that was just
4: like when it was happening, it had to be like one of those things where they don't have to be out together. They just have to show up on the stage and then they can go back into their separate worlds.
1: You know, I was telling you before, it's, it's great when an agent gets the resident model. Some some don't. As you well know, some agents are just focused on that number next to the word guarantee and they don't want to hear anything else about it. Are you saying some agents are money driven? <laughs> I'm saying some agents are able to look at things a little bit differently and maybe we use this word before, put a different spin on it to their clients, and Dennis Arfa is one of the guys that gets that really, really well. Dennis has Rod Stewart in residency over at the Coliseum. Pete Pappalardo and I did several residency runs with Motley Crue, another artist that's not touring any longer. Adam Kornfeld and I did a Def Leppard run together. And talk and about
4: big production shows, those metal hair bands that you're talking about from the, the 80s and 90s. like Those guys are giving up a ton of production in those rooms, and that's after their show.
1: Billy Joel, I think, is one that I would love to see get going. And what keeps me optimistic is that uh, Dennis really gets the model, which makes things a little bit more difficult. Well, really- he has a residency career. That's Square Garden and it's great. I think like a lot of singers, this arid air in Las Vegas sometimes fucks with one's vocal cords. Somehow Elton makes it work. Elton makes it happen.
4: We broke this into two pieces. Yes. And we could talk about The Residencies Forever because it fascinates me and we've never really talked about it on the podcast. So I think that's a fascinating piece. You also compete on a day-to-day basis with not only the casinos and Live Nation and C3 in the case of Cosmopolitan. You've got a very competitive one-off business in this market. Now, Before we just talk about going to town and buying shows in a competitive market, which this is, mm-hmm. we have to factor in the fact that not only are you dealing with casino money, which a lot of people are around the country too, because there are casinos everywhere, but you have the biggest casinos in the world literally competing with you that have lost leader money to fuck with you as much as they want to. You have places with huge capacities and huge abilities. On top of that, you've got shows that no one else has competing with them. You've got magic and you've got giveaways right. and you've got circus circus theme parks right. like right down the street. All of this against you, plus all of the other residencies the sporting events, what have you. So before you put a show on sale on any night of the week, you have more competing with you in this market than
1: any other market in the world. There are certainly difficult markets to be a promoter. Being in Denver, I think would be a really tough market to do shows in New York, L.A. But no doubt in my mind, this is the most competitive market. You touched on a lot of those things. The casino, loss leader business, that's not so prevalent anymore. These resorts, especially this one that you're sitting in, multi-billion dollar developments. Entertainment departments are treated like any other division. They need to hit budget. Does it happen sometimes? Of course it does. You know, the Hard Rock is a property that will take on some losses. They're off the strip. They want the foot traffic. They want the great branding especially if it's a cooler show especially if it's a cooler show you know we just wrapped up this year we've done five nine inch nails dates at the joint not too many 4500 seaters nine inch nails is going into and for all those shows we were the only shows announced in, in in the u.s they blew out That doesn't come with an inexpensive price tag. Now, if you ask the Hard Rock if that was worth cutting the deal, in two seconds they would say yes. And it absolutely is.
4: Because those are all destination shows for their fans.
1: They're destination shows that's a very on-brand band for them, meaning their fans are going to stick around the Hard Rock. Nine Inch Nails wasn't a residency, it was repeat business. We do different things for that to make the artist happy. Custom gaming felts we had their signage everywhere as much as as Trent wanted to allow us to put up there. They had billboards all along the strip, even though we'd been sold out for months before they got here. That's all well and good. That's what I kind of call common sense marketing. Other people maybe don't do all those things that I like to do. The details that we spend time on Trent curated a a playlist that was to be, you know, he lined up people to buy tickets in advance this time on on the arena run. You had to go to the box office and and buy tickets. Physically, yeah, you lined
4: up like you did like it was the 90s. Yeah,
1: and he kind of curated a playlist for the venues to play while people were waiting online. Pretty cool, you know? We took that playlist, and every seventh song at the Hard Rock, 24 hours a day, was a song off that playlist. Oh, nice. So, like, he loved that. You know what I mean? Not, Not only, it wasn't an ego thing about hearing the songs. But it was the attention to detail and the idea to do it and the thought that went behind it. I mean, like,
4: you know, kinda of like the city of Chicago playing the dead music yeah, everywhere right. for fairly well. I mean
1: you're you're kinda of able to do those kind of things with Create the, the Vibe. Create the vibe. I consider the hard rock to be a campus of the artist that's playing there. It's a relatively big venue, forty five hundred, for the amount of hotel rooms, I think like twelve hundred. You know, this place has 7,000 rooms, and we booked a 1,500-seater downstairs. We're talking about wind by the way. I don't know if we mentioned them where we were at. As, as great a venue as that is, 1,500 people on this property is not insanely impactful. 4,500 people at the Hard Rock is insanely impactful. If you can provide that campus feeling and make it where Nine Inch Nails fans want to stay, that's what we're in this business for, right? right. You're talking about massive them. per heads, and you're not talking about $20
4: in beer. You're talking about $1,000 for them in their meals and their room and their all of their swag needs while they're there. You're getting all of it. And, that goes back and to, they're gambling. this. That goes back
1: to what we were saying before, which you recognized. Not only is it difficult to land shows in this market, but once you land them and you go on sale, the amount of competition that any promoter has for someone's entertainment dollar, I mean, it's ridiculous out here. Whether it's legal or illegal, there are a zillion options of things to do out here. You want to do things you're not doing in your hometown. Not any city in the world has the amount of Cirque du Soleil shows here. They're all great. Like, they're great. And if you're living in Chicago, or you're, you know, wherever you're living in the U.S., your city doesn't have an $80 million nightclub like, like Hakkasan is. It doesn't have a $100 million nightclub like Ami does. It doesn't have, oh, it doesn't have Le Rev. It doesn't have all these things that you can go do. So are you, are you going to go see Social Distortion at the Brooklyn Bowl when you're here? Well, you, you, know, you can go do that in your town. You don't need to spend a night going to see Social D in Las Vegas. Probably
4: the only city in the world, though, where you're competing between a Social D ticket and Dave or Copperfield, and it's a jump ball.
1: Do I go to Social D or do I go to Copperfield or do I gamble or do I go to a strip club? You know, I was going to spend money on a ticket and drinks. I'm, I'm going to put it on my alma mater and see how they do. They're their, their playing tomorrow and they're massive underdogs. And there's always something new because the city is constantly there's building and opening. Something new, always something new. Always something different. Drinks. Food. If you live in um, a very big city like Dallas, Guy Savoie doesn't have a restaurant there. Guy Savoie has a restaurant here. If you're a foodie and you want to try Guy Savoie, it's a $600 meal. You know, like, where do you spend your money? How do you allocate your money? And how much of that is there. Yeah, right. Or if you're making decisions, what gets cut? Do I go see this concert or do I go see David Copperfield? Do I go to Gui Do I go to the strip club? Whatever it might be. Again, there's a million options out here. Because
4: it's Vegas and people travel in and make decisions late, you guys have these massively expensive shows and I imagine in a good majority of them, you guys sell a ton of the tickets in the last 72 hours. Are you trained to recognize that that's the trend and can you tell when a show is not trending correctly towards the end or is it it always gets there in the end because this is Vegas and that's how it works?
1: D all the above. We freak the fuck out sometimes. Because everything sells like a reggae concert here, right? Like, everything <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's good to look at. They say it's something like 82% of the people when they get to Vegas don't know what they're going to do in Vegas. That's why when you flew in here, all the advertising you see at the airport, taxi trunks, taxi hops, you're inundated with messaging the moment you you get to town because there's so many options and so many things to do.
4: See, I do it the other way. I try not to
1: tell people I'm coming to Vegas so I don't have managers and agents telling me you got to see my act. But, you know, that provides a certain level of, of excitement. And I also, I mean, I have conversations with agents all the time.
4: Yeah, they're going to be freaking out, too, because you've got to be the lowest kind of the tour constantly, oh I constantly.
1: I constantly hear that line.
4: Yeah, but it's probably true when they tell you, with the highest guarantee, too. I'm sure. the highest guarantee.
1: <laughs> if we're doing a show in an arena, the casino might be holding, pick a number, 2,500 tickets. We have our deals with the casino. We know when they're committed versus held, okay? If I'm telling the agent they're committed, they're committed. They don't process them right away. They're busy. They have a lot of stuff going on. There's a fight with $85 million in the purse. You know, There's huge things going on at all times. They're not so focused on you know these 2,000 like artists' tickets that they're being held. And they're committed to, by the way. So
4: regardless, sell them or not, they're so paying the for are, them. But, but
1: the, no. you know, then they get a phone call from the agent, oh, we want to make sure those aren't going to go unused. I'm like, you know, they're not. People want to see them. And I've had this conversation no less than 500 times, I think, and every single time I've been right, I've never once had an agent come out and say, man, you you, you told me the first three rows would be filled up, they're empty, we're fucked, blah, 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 blah. It just, it doesn't happen that way anymore. You know, the casinos aren't giving away high-priced tickets willy-nilly. To someone that's not gonna go or someone that's not a real bona fide, you know, gambler.
4: I think we've uh, all just built that fear into them with the PBS tours where and, uh, those those high pledges yeah. come in and people are just like, Yeah, we give money to PBS And and
1: I, I do understand their concern like anyone when you have the same conversation a couple hundred times and then they I know you know your market, but <laughs> I know you know your market, but you guys are in the game all the way through. You're
4: competing with Live Nation, you guys have a serious stake in this market, like no other financially, between building buildings, building residency. Doing one offs, booking the Brooklyn Bowl, booking the joint, booking what, the win here, booking Caesars. You guys are all over the place with your residencies. The volume you guys are doing is insane. Top of your game right now it seems. What's next that you want to do that you haven't pulled off yet, Bobby?
1: I would love to, a lot of the, the younger acts that have come here have been of the of the pop persuasion. I, I want to get some younger rock acts in here. I, I, I think it would be so well-received. I have my dream list. Probably imagine who they are, you know, Dave, Chili Peppers.
4: Well, if Blink's doing it, you to figure a- Chili Peppers could be doing it. Yeah, they're doing festivals. It yeah, doesn't seem and, that far off.
1: And that, that's what I was saying, you know, like the more artists that come in and do that, the better off. I am, you know, there's no doubt about it. That word will spread. And 99.9% of the time, it's, it's, it's a good word. So, you know, even Blink's thing, that's a weekend piece of business. It's not a real consistent type show. It's it's their version of a residency. Much like I didn't want to refer to Nine Nails as a residency. I, I, with all due respect, I don't know if that's a real traditional residency. Not a knock on anyone, but, you know, you're doing six or nine shows in a, in a two or three week period and you're doing multiple runs of those that feels like a residency to me nine inch nails and and the guys at live nation in the palms being good at what they do and being very opportunistic with a a property relaunch over at the over at the palms it's a great piece of the business for them. I would love to see, though, a, a more real...
4: Like a Green Day or something doing like a doing 30 a days or run. something. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah exactly right. The way Motley Crue the did 20, it. Exactly the way Motley Crue did it. And Motley Crue, I, I think, was one of the coolest things I've been a part of. And I'm not the world's biggest Motley Crue fan. But those well, guys fuck got you, it from well, fuck me. those guys got it from day one. They all flew out to see the joint to walk the property. Nikki Six is is insanely involved and a really smart guy. Yeah, those guys are showmen and they get they, it. And they get it. And not only was their show fantastic, but the show more than any residency I've seen, the show started and continued before and after the show. What do I mean? We had people on the casino floor breathing fire we had stilt walkers we had bearded i mean we, they created atmosphere we had the carnival of sin city those guys really embraced it and really knocked the cover off the ball from a creativity standpoint and also just getting it like knowing they weren't spending money on hotel rooms and all this other shit, they spent money on other things to continue to fortify their brand and, and that's what's kept them around so long
4: advice for the young kids coming up in the business that want to find themselves going from being alone in an apartment booking shows to running Vegas for
1: a major promoter. Yeah, we just had this conversation not that long ago with someone, and it, and it's just just work, just go to work, grind, 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 grind. I mean, you know, this is a, a business where at least if you kind of came up how I did through bigger companies and being an employee and, and climbing the ranks that way, I made no money for a long time. Just just keep working. I mean, just keep being a promoter. Keep creating, keep doing things, keep trying things within your means, but but just keep working. I, I remember living in LA, working for Kev Morrow, making twenty-two thousand five hundred dollars a year and like being envious as fuck of my cousin that was making fifty-five thousand dollars a year. And I was like, Oh man, <laughs> like if I could ever make fifty-five thousand dollars a year, life would be so much better. I loved what I did then, I love what I do now. There were times when not making money seemed like a real drag. And maybe I would second guess my career decision, but never for real. It was just when I was in a funk and when I had a shitty day at work and I was late on my car payment, those, those thoughts crept in, but I never like applied for a job at a bank or, you know, went to go to a car dealership to sell cars. I've only been in this business and this is really the only business for me.
4: Promoter 101 with the great Bobby Reynolds. Great being here. Thank you. Bobby's such a great guy. Love that we finally got him on the podcast. This is John Schultz, Tom Windisch, Charlie from Crescent Ballroom, Craig Newman, Dave Brooks, Dave Ratner, John
2: Holiday, Doug Bignell, L X, Eamon Shaw, Kelly Lesko, Gerald B. Henley, Harlan Fry
0: here, Jack Ross, Jason Miller, Jeffrey Fox, Joe Escalante, Blair LeBlanc, Molly Atkins, Neil Dixon, mm-hmm. Nick Farkas, Paula Palazzo, and I'm on Promoter 101,
1: Promoter 101, Promoter
3: 101, Tweets Tweet. Tweet of the Week. It just can't be avoided. It's that time. It's time for Tweets of the Week. First up, ticket service charge fees are the mystery meat of rock and roll.
4: No idea what makes them up, but clearly they're not going away and we must have them as part of our healthy rock and roll diet, Jamie.
3: All right. Well, I don't eat meat, so I don't know what that says. But hey, next, when you've been covering mostly seated shows for so long, you forget how fun a mosh pit can be.
4: Shout out to Ghost and Social Distortion for reminding me of my youth recently. The pit can be a good time. Jamie, you've done some Slayer shows recently. You visit the pit?
3: I've visited, but I've observed from afar.
4: Well, they can be a sweaty, unhappy place, but they are fun to watch and they make you feel very youthful.
3: Eight vertebrae fused and two rods in my back. I don't think that moshing is in my future.
4: But hey, that's a story for another podcast.
3: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Next up, when an agent asks you for 180% of the show's sellout gross for a baby band, that will not come close to selling out.
4: Oh, it's the magic of our industry. It's what it's all based on. I know they're not going to gross it, but you know what? Just be there for us, guys.
3: Just give it to us anyway. Come on.
4: It's there. Come on. You can afford it. Come
3: on. (laughs) All right, that does it for Promoter 101 Tweets. You can follow Dan at the Jew on Twitter.
1: Hey there, this is Seth Hurwitz. I am one of the last independent promoters. I'm proud of it. And
0: you are listening to Promoter 101.
3: Next, a war story with Kill the 8 merch company's Aaron Rosen.
0: Promoter 101, we've got a war story. Joining us is Aaron Rosen. Tell us a tale, my friend. Okay, so I don't know if it's a war story or more of a very valuable lesson. And this happened, I would say, two and a half years into working with Kill the Eight. We were fortunate enough to get introduced to a very popular vintage hip hop artist that was going out on tour nationally across the country. Things worked out. We got to work with them. It was a huge thrill. Everything worked out super awesome.
4: Nothing about this sounds like a war story so far.
0: Here we go. So the valuable lesson that was learned that I will take with me for many, many future moons, we, I guess, to entice working with them extended really favorable terms on what we supplied. The artist came in, met us on arrival to pick up their initial order. Everything was paid properly. Merch sales went beyond what was projected and expected. We had to go into an immediate re-up because they were going westbound across the country and we had to keep up with it. So we went ahead and went into a huge- So you fronted for them financially? We did. We, gave, we extended some terms. I believe at that time it was like net 15, which really isn't a lot. At the end of the day on that second supply, it was shipped. It wasn't picked up in person and we kind of got the go around. You know, it was like, well, come meet us at our hotel when we're in Toronto and we'll settle up, which then turned into come drive out to London, Ontario, which is about an hour and a half west of where we're sitting and I'll settle up with you after the show. Long story short, we go up, I'm watching the show, we're backstage after, everyone's hanging out, having a really good time. It comes time to confront the manager, which I do with my tail between my legs and you know, basically get to business affairs. And we basically got the go F yourself, we're doing okay and we'll pay you when it's time and when we're ready. Did they ever pay you? No valuable lesson learned.
4: So never trust a a vintage hip hop artist with
0: your product in advance. Exactly. As exciting as it is, I mean, as happy as you are, business is business and you got to keep safe. War Stories with Aaron Rosen. Thanks so much. Pleasure.
4: Watch for a full interview with Aaron coming up shortly on Promoter 101, but not this week. So don't watch that closely. Hello, this is Sarah Mertz, Rick Barrow, Nick Light, Mark Geiger, this is Lee Anderson,
1: <laughs> Kevin Lyman, John Giddings, Jim Rungi, Jeff White, Brian Zisk, Chuck Randall, Brian O'Connell,
2: Zandria Johnson, Adam Parsons. Darielle Hyatt, Ben Mench, Jamie Miller,
1: Billy Wayne Davis, Brandon Frankel,
4: Miss LaFont, Jake Gould, Gary Smith, Jeff Cohen. You are on Promoter 101. Promoter 101.
3: Next, we are joined by the lovely and talented Noelle Largius from APA. How are you doing? I'm good.
4: <laughs> you rock the world of middle of the road at APA. You guys do all sorts of adult contemporary, PACs, and we're really doing a serious amount of business right now.
7: Holding it down on the West Coast, for sure. Casinos, performing arts centers, theaters... I'm handling it all. Just
4: the sexiest part of our business.
7: Very, very sexy. (laughs) Everyone's always dying to go to my shows, if it's your parents.
4: (laughs) You started as a performer and you still play, right?
7: Correct. I play cello from age nine until now. So that was my influence and what got me started. And I like that my roots are really as a performer and in music and... It really helped me to transfer from a classical background into theaters. Most people my age are really interested in the cool hip clubs and I grew up in theaters. I played at Vets in Providence and at PPAC and all that since about fifth grade. So theater was what I know and that sort of became an easy transition for me as an adult.
4: Rhode Island is uh, where you cut your teeth?
7: Yep. (laughs) I grew up in Rhode Island and I went to Syracuse University. Go Orange, which is an amazing, amazing alumni network. and that has been really helpful to me just getting my foot in the door initially at the agency group and with networking out here in LA. And yeah, it's been
4: really great. Okay, so you started the agency group and were you on Andrea Johnson's desk at first is that?
7: I started as the receptionist which shout out to Kate Hanley Vistano over at UTA for giving me my first job. And she thought I could handle answering the phone and taking lunch orders and go from there. So it was really great. I mean, that was in 2008, which was really tough. I graduated from 2007 and I had about a year break. I had some family stuff to take care of and going in in 2008 when the economy was bottoming out and lots of people weren't taking risk and moving around and getting new jobs was tricky. So I was really happy and excited to sort of slide right in there right before the next graduating class came out. And there were a lot of opportunities within the company there because of the agents who were there at that time and in that window i guess so
4: thinking about you as the receptionist at the agency group new york back then is like being a receptionist at a big fraternity house that's really nice
7: pretty much pretty
4: much i mean it's very male dominated it was super
7: male dominated i mean natalia was there Andrew was there and that was about it in terms of agent level or management level But it was great. And that was my first summer living in New York City after I had graduated college. And I really felt like I made it. (laughs) I finally got my foot in the door somewhere. I'm at a big agency. People know what I'm doing. And I was out at shows all the time. They always invited me and I was treated as an equal member on their team. And I remember the first show I went to when I was with the agency group. It was the Raconteurs. It was Dave Kaplan's act at Terminal 5. Jack White. I didn't even really know the intense history that Dave had with Jack at the time and sort of how that had helped grow the agency in New York in particular. And we stood, you know, everyone just kept on slapping all these silk passes on on my pants and on my jacket and just saying, go up a level, go up a level. And I just sort of followed with everybody. And I thought like, man, this is the coolest thing. I just, that was the first time I had really been to a show with Access. And we stood on that third level and... Someone turned to me and just said, hey, say hi over here. And it was Jim Glancy and to be working there for a couple of weeks and to have them take the time to make me feel like I was important enough on the team to introduce me to Jim at my very first show ever was I mean, to think about that now is just really crazy. So pass
4: upon pass upon pass gets you to Jim Glancy. The goal was to meet Glancy because in New York he's the bigger rock star.
7: Right, right. And I doubt that he remembers how influential that was for me, but I had read about him and I knew who he was. And I don't know, it's just that I really think about that first summer when I lived in New York and who was in that office at the time. Sort of, it was Peter Schwartz, it was Dave Kaplan, it was Ken and Steve Martin, obviously, Josh Dick and Seth Rappaport. And it's just... To have like one day in that frat house, like you were saying now, would be super cool because that was just like my little family when I started. So
4: it was always a fun office to run around and just like, For sure. <laughs> is this one of the days where Tim Bohr's actually in New York? Okay, cool. Now let's go read the bar. <laughs> Tim Bohr has Tim one Boer's, of the best bars Yeah, in his the bar office.
7: definitely upgraded when we moved offices. But a little sidebar about Tim, when you first moved to New York or when you first start at an agency in general, you're not really making that much money, right? You know, you're starting at the very bottom. The league minimum, we like to say. The league minimum. And it was rough, but I figured it out for the most part. But I did have one time that it was the 30th going into the first of the month. And I was that couple hundred bucks short or whatever. And Tim Bohr gave me the money to pay my rent for the month. And That's I remember awesome. he came around the corner and I he knew I was stressing. or I don't know how he found out that that was just it was a really tight month for me. Or maybe I had had a little too much fun on the weekend or whatever. But he gave me the couple hundred bucks I needed and a couple hundred extra so that I wasn't so crushed and and i remember i just sat there and cried (laughs) and i was so grateful and you pay him back i think i still owe you a couple hundred bucks to import (laughs) and some drinks and maybe a restock at the bar but i bet he'd tell you to pay that for exactly another assistant that needs exactly so didn't even know what i was getting myself into with that group of people and how thankful i was that they Stepped up and did stuff like that for me. So
4: Menchie, Mensch move. You gotta love that. The biggest, scariest, tattooed motherfucker in the place.
7: With- yeah, and I'm a white girl from Rhode Island, so that was something that I never really experienced up close. And he's a big teddy bear, so
4: Rhode Island. I don't know. Why I'm stuck on that. It's I know. Like, I'm probably
7: the only person most of you know from Rhode Island, which right? is pretty cool. Well, so holding it down.
4: It's the home of the Dunkin' Donan Arena.
7: I was called something else there when it changed Dunkin' Donuts Center when I was in high school or in college, but... I'm always dunk, curious
4: if they sell donuts in the arena on the concourse. I'm sure
7: they do. I haven't been there in years and years. It's so not
4: really an evening type of thing, but it is the Dunkin' Donuts Center. If you're going to see a basketball game and you can dribble your donut, you are on the ball side.
7: And everyone goes crazy for their coffee out in here in Santa Monica, even though there's way, way better coffee than Dunkin' Donuts, but...
4: You're at the agency group. You get promoted.
7: Yeah. At the time, Andrea Johnson and Mike Morey were sharing an assistant. It was Meredith Peters, now Meredith Croy. She said that she felt like it was a divorce where her parents were saying, you know, pick one of us. So she went with Mike and the opportunity was with Andrea, which I was thrilled about because I really had felt that she and I were on the same wavelength and we had a similar background in terms of classical upbringing. And I sort of went seamlessly along with her. And we had a great partnership. And to be with her when Straighten Chaser was playing the Largo. And when I left or right before the summer before I moved to play the Oakdale Theater was incredible growth. So It was a wild ride, and I had never really seen that before, and she probably hadn't either, so we came in it together, and um,
4: yeah. Were you still an assistant when you moved to LA? I was. Okay, and you had the opportunity to move to LA, and you took that.
7: Yeah, so I was sort of getting a little restless, and as much as I loved my partnership with Andrea and the artist she was working on, and I was just looking for a, a change, and I was looking to make maybe a lateral move with hopes for growth a little sooner, And I had a great opportunity at APA through Corey Christopher, and she helped me make that move. And I really thought that I was just- Did you know her
4: from your tag days?
7: I know her from my tag days. I just said, I'm getting a little restless. What do you think I should do just sort of as a friend? And can I just walk down the street and maybe start at APA? (laughs) Because they were only about four blocks from each other in, in New York at the time. And she said, hold on, I'll call you back in 20 minutes. And when she called me back, she said, what do you think about?" LA instead of the 4 block move. And I was like, you know, what do I have to lose? Okay. So you moved to
4: LA. You've got this new world. You start an assistant, but you move in, you get promoted, you get territory. Well, I
7: first landed on the desk of the one and only Craig Newman.
4: (laughs) Oh, going from Andrew to Craig, that's got to be the most diverse booking style of personalities It right? was
7: definitely different, but I mean, I was looking for a change at the time and that's why I was looking to make the move. So.
4: So who's a better agent, Andrew or Craig?
7: Ooh, <laughs> harsh words. I mean, their styles are totally different and I think that they're really in different worlds, to oh, be which, honest. Which is so. better?
4: <laughs> that's right, I wouldn't answer it either. Yeah.
6: <laughs>
7: yeah. But I went, I went over to Craig because Craig had casino background and he was, that was when APA was really trying to develop a core adult contemporary performing arts department. So I was with Craig to sort of show him what I knew in addition to learning the APA way of doing things. So, and he was in the way that I use the word partnership with Andrea, he was, he really allowed me to be a partner with him, even though I was rolling calls and doing paperwork. But yeah, I remember that the Fab Four wanted to do a PBS special and they had their first meeting with us to discuss that and sort of how that would integrate with touring after I had been working for Craig for maybe two weeks. And we sat in the meeting and they said, this is who we're thinking of getting as the producer. And I said, oh, I know him. I've worked on XYZ with him at Agency Group and he's great and I highly recommend him and I have a close relationship with him. And are you going to do a March pledge? Or are you going to do a Christmas pledge? Like, And I remember we left the meeting and Craig sort of gave me a little pat on the back and was just like, I'm so glad I hired you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it was and it felt good to feel like I was contributing something that was maybe a skill set that he wasn't super well versed in and that I could bring something to the table in that way. So
4: PBS is a unique business opportunity, and most people can't wrap their head around it. And it's one of those things though, once you get it, it's actually not that difficult. The concept of it really isn't that hard. It's just wrapping your head around giving away the comps and the best seats in the house and whatever, and then running the infomercial. But once you get your head wrapped around it, it's a pretty cool system.
7: It's its own animal, that's for sure. And you sort of have to know a few of the players and know how to speak the language. But You're right. Once you're in, it's easy to integrate that into other projects, too. All
4: right. Let's jump ahead. You do your time as assistant, you get promoted, you get your territory, natural transition of that. And you've been doing that for quite a while and you do a lot of the arts booking. So in the midst of APA existing, half of your agency group family over the time has... Defected over to your world Like a huge stream Of the people you used To work with Are now back in your office So you had probably Amazing relationships As that happened You knew all of those Guys coming in
7: Well I'd like to first say That migrating From agency group To APA I made it trendy
4: <laughs> <laughs> I bet Corey Christopher Would say she made it trendy Well maybe
7: made me Corey Stan corrected Corey made it trendy But Keith but Mesbeth
4: I... might have Some claim to that too huh?
7: <laughs> In terms of the Bigger migration I came over Before Steve Martin And later Everyone always said Oh you came with Steve Oh, you came with Steve or did you follow Steve? And I said, no, Steve followed me, which I think he'll get a chuckle out of. So it was Steve and then- It
4: was Andy first, right?
7: In LA, it was Andy first. So I knew Andy and Bruce pretty well, but I was never in the same office with them since I was in New York and they were in LA. But you're right, is that I did feel like it was easier for them to trust me with some of this stuff in the beginning. And although they knew Craig and Christiane and other people in Humiston and other people who had been there for a long, long time, they, I think they trusted me as one of them, so. We should go
4: back for a second because I think actually Jamie Kelso gets the credit for being the first one to do the defection.
7: Yeah, I'm talking about the the one in the last five years, really know, more but specifically. Like, but, but yeah, when I fir- when I first went in, it was when you it was, think about
4: that hallway, it's like
7: yeah, Jamie, John Panel, Keith. They were there all before me, so.
4: They merged an agency without actually merging an agency. Yeah, an
7: unofficial merge, I would say. But
4: people that you had a working relationship with from the past, so that had to be like really helpful that you knew who these players were. like
7: Right. And I also, I knew their rosters really well. I had seen most of those shows a number of times back in my New York days. And so it was really easy for me to jump in and help them out, especially when they were transitioning. and. Trying to get stuff in our system and all that. So,
4: the things that the agency group didn't have that you guys do have is your full service agency.
7: Yeah. We're huge
4: film and TV division. TV company. film,
7: reality, branded lifestyle, all that we could offer to all of our clients. And I think that that's been obviously a, a huge advantage for a lot of them who came over from agency group.
4: How does selling performing arts differ than selling rock and roll? You know both sides of the business, but you focus on the PACs and the the middle-of-the-road stuff in the theater world. That's your bread and butter.
7: The day-to-day, the big difference is the timing. So I'm already working on stuff for next season, which is September of 2018 through May of 2019 now. And I can say, oh, I know which weekends are available. So that's really the big difference is we're thinking really far ahead. But because I'm doing clubs and casinos and theaters, I'm trying to put the puzzle pieces together for the greater whole and sort of the, if we're gonna play this now and here this spring, what are we gonna do next year? And what are we gonna do two years from now? And how are we gonna rotate that? And how are we gonna you know, spread the love, but also be smart about how often we're playing in a marketplace or in a certain area?
4: Do Broadway buyers or people buying Broadway series, or when you're putting a show on a season, these big nonprofits or grant series type of things, when a show stiffs, do those guys freak out and call for reductions and need help, or is it just part of their their season money? It doesn't matter.
7: I mean, I don't want to speak for every theater out there, since not well, all are on, yeah yeah not all are sort of on the same system. But in general, I'm getting fewer calls than some of my colleagues for reductions or for. Help or you know they sort of have their little marketing machine that they're used to their brochure their season and they have a built-in audience in a lot of cases so they're pretty protected and which is good because stuff that we're playing soft ticket we can almost play a hybrid as a theater so
4: what's the most reliable always makes money always leaves the audience happy show that you work with what is the best client that you like I can sell this to almost anyone and they're going to come out winning.
7: I'd say the day to day that I'm working on would be Air Supply. Which is
4: consistent winner, great live show. Consistent,
7: great live show. They actually changed up their live show. And even though I'm seeing that two or three times a year, when I went in September, even I went away saying, wow, I saw something different that I hadn't seen before. And also, the difference between rock or contemporary and what we're doing is you're very aware of what it is you're buying. So my big pitch on air supply could be, hey, do you want to buy an air supply date versus, you know, this is my new band and here's their stats and here's their number of followers. There's a lot more information that you need to yeah, make you're it. Not,
4: here's an illusionist. Have you heard of him? It's air supply.
7: Right. I have a date. This is the money. It works for you. You should take it. Yeah.
4: Kansas and air supply seem like that's a pretty straightforward bitch.
7: It's pretty solid. So. Yeah. Who are
4: they? We've got Kansas.
7: Exactly. Yeah, I, I get that. <laughs> so that part makes my job a easy. There's a, little a catalog easy. of
4: hits. Would you like that or not?
7: Yeah. And I definitely sing on the phone sometimes. <laughs> There's a lot of, <laughs> I'm all out of love jokes. So um, yeah, I mean, everyone knows those hits. And even though I was born in the 80s, you feel like you're growing up with that surrounding you in the house and the car, all of that. So I still have a connection to a lot of that stuff, even though generationally I'm one step younger than a lot of those.
4: Well, all their agents are dying off. They need
7: you. They need me. <laughs>
4: The arts community took a big hit when the economy fell apart seven, eight years ago. Grants dried up, sponsorship dried up, things got soft, and they had smaller seasons and a lot less activity. Have you seen that come back or have they just evolved?
7: I think it's come back, but I also think that a lot of them have gotten smarter. You know, they're not that they weren't smart before, but a lot of them have gotten more proactive about. The changing dynamic, the world we live in today is very internet-based and social media-based. And a lot of those, even though they're older clients, they're more Facebook clients versus Instagram clients kind of level, but they're trying to be diverse in how they're reaching out to their audiences and how they're approaching those things, how they're marketing them. So I think it's, they're trying to evolve with the times
4: so there's some Darwinism with that, where a lot of these nonprofits always ran like they didn't have to make money and didn't run like a successful business. It's our mission to bring arts to the world. We don't care about the money, opposed to some of the bigger nonprofits like Seattle Theater Group or The Trust in Minneapolis. like They truly run like very well-run theaters and promoters. They're companies that are trying to do the best business they possibly can. And I think we're seeing an evolution towards that.
7: Yeah. Some you might have more of an awareness of their 501c3 status. And some you work with because they're really active, like promoters are in terms of going out there and making aggressive offers or competing for stuff in their market. So it really depends on some, it's very obvious if they're city owned and operated or subsidized. And some, I almost kind of like they're like secret ninjas or something, you know, that they're operating in a for-profit world, even though they are a not-for-profit business.
4: As an agent, do you have any pet peeves in the industry?
7: There's a lot of things that I try to do because I don't like when someone does that to me. Something like answering every call or returning every email. You know, we're all backed up. We're all very busy, but I try to be very communicative with all of my buyers. And I try to answer people, even if they're reaching for something that I know might not be possible for them. I try to... You know, I don't just blow them off. I try to sort of let them down easy or try to steer them into another direction or something like that. So I try not to feel like I'm above anybody or holier than thou because... I do have a big territory with a lot of responsibility.
4: I always wonder, like, there's some agents that truly, I'm very honest on the phone, like, I don't want you asking me for an offer seven times that I know I'm not going to send. So I'm very big on, no, I'm, th- that's an offer I'm never going to make. Right up front, you know that that's, you're not waiting for an offer. And I know a lot of promoters don't want to say no on the phone. So they're like, yeah, yeah, the offer's coming, and it never comes, right? There's a lot yeah, of Yeah,
7: I mean, I, the same way as I try to be a straight shooter, and I try to be really honest. And I think that my buyers appreciate that, that I'm not doing some big dance to eventually say no or move it to the guy hey, would you down the just street. you no
4: like right off exactly. the bat? Exactly.
7: I think it's going to save all of us a lot of time and energy and we could spend that on other things.
4: Any advice for people coming up in the industry?
7: I don't know. I think you just, you have to go into every show and every meeting and every sort of opportunity thinking that you never know who you're going to meet. You never know who you're going to end up bumping into and talking to. So you want to sort of always be on your game and putting your best foot forward and just stay in contact and stay communicative. And I still, even now, I try to send little follow-up emails like, hey, it was great meeting you at such and such or whatever, because you just, you never know when that's going to come back. And you never know when that person's going to say, oh, I did remember that them. And I didn't remember that I had a great interaction with her. And I do want to work with her. That might come back to you later. So you just never know. Your industry
4: taking you from Rhode Island to New York to LA, is this your home forever? have you fallen in love with LA
7: I love living here I love living in Los Angeles I loved New York but it can be a serious grind on your body and your soul and I think it's a little bit of an easier lifestyle here in terms of getting space and you can't beat the weather obviously so but I don't know I'm I'm open to it I mean I'm an east coast girl living in a west coast world so sometimes I'm a little too rough (laughs) for everybody and I'm a little too pushy but that's my roots and so you never know Leaving that open.
4: Thank you so much for taking time and talking to us. Thanks, Dan. Noel is clearly a rising star in the industry and stoked we finally got her on the podcast for a full interview.
0: This is Omar Aljolani from Live Nation, and you're listening to Promoter 101.
3: We are celebrating birthdays from August 10th to August 16th,
0: 2018. That's Friday the 10th,
4: Laura Kirby and Randy Hawkins of the Atmosphere Touring Crew. Shout out to Minneapolis.
3: Saturday, Rob Chalice, Jimmy Koplick. And Brett Moseman. Sunday,
4: from the Adele Touring Crew, Greg Bogart.
3: Monday, August 13th, wrestling superstar Jumpin' Jim Bronzel and Adam Bauer.
4: they kind of the same, Jim Bronzel and Adam Bauer.
3: I was gonna say.
4: You never really see him in the same place at the same time, I'm just saying. I hear ya. Tuesday, August 14th, Stuart Goldberg, John Trembler, Brett Blair, John Boyle, and Peter Jest.
3: Wednesday, August 15th, Rob Buswell. Cass Scripps, Susie Gange, and Steve Einzik.
4: And Thursday, eight sixteenth, the date solely goes to my wifey, Elodie Steinberg. Happy birthday, wife.
3: Aw, happy birthday, Elodie. Happy birthday to all of you from all of us at Promoter 101.
2: Hey, it's Jonathan Shank from Red Light Management on Promoter 101.
3: Feel free to write us at steiny at promoter101.net. The quote of the week comes to us from
4: none other than Garth Brooks. When I went to see Kansas, Queen and Sticks, I don't remember the music, but I know I saw them. Kind of sums up my youth.
3: We'll be back next week with a brand new Promoter 101 with Vic Thomas, Bob Babish, and Scott Zeal. Plus, Martin Hopewell shares the magic that is ILMC and a war story from CAA's Brian Hill.
4: We're wishing you sold out shows for the weeks to come. And thank you so much, Jamie, for playing guest host this week. You make an awesome Luke.
3: Oh, my pleasure.
0: Hi, it's Peter Katzis. You're listening to Promoter 101.